Welcome to the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, and my two guests today are an incredible team that we're thrilled to have the opportunity to publish. Jack Zipes and Natalie Frank are, respectively, the translator and artist whose newest project is a collection of stories by E.T.A. Hoffman titled The Wounded Storyteller, The Traumatic Tales of E.T.A. Hoffman. Hoffman was a German romantic author of gothic tales, fantasy stories. His writing has inspired many, many subsequent writers from Edgar Allan Poe to Nikolai Gogol to Charles Dickens. And it was Alexandre Dumas' adaptation of Hoffman's story, The Mouse King, that Tchaikovsky set to music and which has become the staple of holiday stages everywhere, the Nutcracker. Jack Zipes has crafted new translations of five Hoffman stories, and Natalie Frank has created new artworks based on the stories that grace every page of the book. Jack and Natalie have collaborated previously on books including The Island of Happiness, The Tales of Madame Dolnois, Tales of the Brothers Grimm, and The Sorcerer's Apprentice, an anthology of magical tales. Jack, no one will be at all surprised to hear at this point, is Professor Emeritus of German, Comparative Literature, and Cultural Studies, who is a globally respected authority on fairy tales and their social and political roles. Natalie is an acclaimed artist whose work explores themes of feminism, power, sexuality, and identity. Her works have been shown in dozens of museum and gallery exhibitions, and I thank you both, Natalie and Jack, for your time today. Thank you, Jessica, for having us. Yeah, thank you. Can we start? I, I have so many questions I'd like to ask you both, but can we start by talking about the title of the new book, The Wounded Storyteller, where that comes from, um, how it applies to Hoffman, and how it's meant to frame these stories? Yeah, the... Um there's a, a great Canadian author, author by the name of uh, Arthur Frank, and he's a sociologist, uh, and he's the one who coined the term the wounded uh, storyteller, and in fact uses uh, in his profession um, <clears throat> storytelling to try to help people who are suffering from various uh, traumatic uh, incidents in their lives. And uh, and since, ever since he published his book, I think it was in the 1990s or early, yeah, 1990s, uh, the, there has been a field now of, of I would say, people who are, more, uh, who are more culturally involved in, in their particular fields. Uh, uh, there's now been a, a large let us say, publication or studies that deal with uh, trauma and how it impacts uh, various art, not only artists, but uh, individuals who have had uh, terrible trauma and how one can try to uh, overcome the trauma and the suffering that one has had. And so uh, Hoffman fits the bill. <laughs> he was... Uh, extremely, actually, I would say, from the very beginning of his life when abandoned by his father and uh, his father would, would, would never take him back or would have nothing to do with him. And he was raised by mainly uh, uh, 
aunts and stepmothers and things like that. And uh, eventually uh, had different uh, traumatic experiences as a civil servant, as a lawyer. And, uh, and also this was the Napoleonic Wars uh, were happening. And uh, when he finally decided or, or managed to get to Berlin, he finally found the place where he could write and deal with the trauma that he had. And it shows in almost all his stories and everything that he did, um, there's a, a critical, uh, very critical analysis of German society at that time. And um, he was not somebody who uh, preached, uh, you know, to the choir. Uh, he was someone who actually uh, allegorically dealt with the problems that he had and his, that I would say intensifies his stories because of the fact that uh, they dealt with young people. Almost all the stories that uh, Natalie has brilliantly, um, uh, I would say, portrayed, uh, you can you can see the suffering, and the young people who can are trying to break out of the society bureaucratic society that Germany was at the time, somewhat hypocritical society, and um, so storytelling can be something that can uh, enable uh, people who are suffering from trauma to find a way to. Uh, slug, slug oneself out of the normal way of thinking and developing a, a let us say, a manner in which uh, you can contend with the, uh, uh, with the powers, let us say, that are, are really trying to destroy you. It's funny listening to you describe this and I was rereading your introduction, Jack, this morning, and it hadn't dawned on me how much this resonates with me, the idea of the wounded storyteller and not fitting into this sort of society where where things often appear, appear at odds and especially seem to contain a will to um, uh, destroy creativity. Growing up in Texas in a very conservative city, where um, perhaps my values didn't align with those around me. And having early experiences starting to draw from the Newt model and eventually bringing those back to my school, um, starting when I was 13, and having the school try to kick me out for being a pornographer, for making life drawing. And it, 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 it kind of engendered this battle that went on for five, six years where they kept me out of the honor society and they kept trying to expel me from school. Um, and I would continue to just pursue what I knew I wanted to be, which was an artist. And I hadn't, I, for some reason, I hadn't really felt that parallel until uh, this morning. <laughs> but I think it's it's wrapped up in my work and certainly from the vantage point of being a woman and making work about the intersections of violence and sexuality in the body, I feel like um, perhaps we're all wounded storytellers to a degree.
That's impressive that you had the uh, sense of purpose and direction as a young teenager to to stick with what you knew you wanted to do despite that, you know, authority figures in your life trying to impose their will on you. That that in itself is almost fairy tale like. I wonder when when did each of you develop an interest in fairy tales? Natalie, when when did you first find fairy tales as captivating as you must, given how you uh, convey them in your artwork? I mean, I remember growing up reading books that my, I remember my father said, why are you reading that on the beach? You're a child. Um, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Goethe. And um, I think Story of O was probably the first feminist fairy tale I found when I was about 15, but I didn't come to traditional fairy tales until I was in the studio of Paula Rigo, who was a mentor of mine, who's a Portuguese artist, uh, was a Portuguese artist, she passed away recently, who lived in London. And a lot of her work dealt with unsanitized fairy tales and recasting women as heroines um, in the tales and using literature, magic, realist, um, fairy tale, folktale literature as a basis for her storytelling. And I remember I was in her studio maybe 10 years ago. And she said, you know, I'm 75. I'm not going to get around to doing this, but you should. And you should look at the Grimm's fairy tales. And I remember I went on to Amazon and Jack Sipes was the first book that came up. And so I ordered it and kind of read it voraciously and fell in love with the stories and his translations and then started to read his work about what fairy tales mean and how they've resonated through the centuries and how they also represent um, kind of these hidden stories and desires of women. And when I, I started to make these drawings, I have very strong synesthesia. And it was the first time that when I read literature, images came to mind, completely formed. And so I started to draw them kind of in secret. And my mom has a house up in, in Nova Scotia, and there's an old barn I work in. And I started to just draw, draw, draw. And eventually, I think I accumulated 30 or 40 of them. And I, I, had the, I asked the curator, Claire Gilman, from the Drawing Center over. And um, she said, you know, we, we should do a show of these. And, that, and, and it was upon that occasion um, that I said, you know, I really want to return these to a book form. And that is how Jack and I began collaborating, but also how I began working from literature and fell in love with these fairy tales and stories. Jack, you've done so much to establish the study of fairy tales within academia. Has that been something that you've been interested in forever, or did you <laughs> <laughs> discover them at some point? Forever and ever. Yeah, uh, well, as, as a child, <coughs> I, I, my mother quite often read the Grimm's and Anderson's tales to me and my brother. <clears throat> and so I, I always had the, the sort of, uh, uh, let us say, a young, uh, well, a hidden desire uh, to do something with fairy tales. Uh, as I, I did that in, in my teens as well. But uh, finally, when I went to Columbia, I decided to do a comparative study of uh, fairy tale heroes in Germany and fairy tale heroes also in the States. And the more I studied 
the fairy tales and finished the book. My, my first book was about the romantic hero in uh, Germany and uh, the United States. Uh, after I finished that, I became more and more interested in children's literature because uh, I developed a method that studied um, uh, the impact that fairy tales have on children. Um, and I, uh, to a certain extent, uh, became very aware of the, uh, the socialization children had through fairy tales and through other, uh, uh, through other stories. And the more I studied uh, fairy tales, the more I thought that it was extremely important uh, that uh, people, uh, that young people learned about uh, uh, violence and uh, uh, I would say barbarism and uh, other evils. And fairy tales were a way that uh, you could uh, and enable children to deal with problems that they had in their own home. For instance, uh, the abandonment of children in uh, Hansel and Gretel is a, a motif that's extremely important up through today. And that's one of the reasons why these fairy tales continue to exist. They really do uh, enable, if, if, if you read the stories and uh, and most people do read uh, the, the classical stories in the Grimm's Tales. They, I think they deal with themes and topics that help them in reality to deal with their lives. So it's the imagination, the celebration of the imagination, I think, and, and, and justice and empathy and compassion in the tales, I think, that um, enable not only children but also adults to deal with their uh, traumatic events, with the fact that they uh, have been somehow uh, cut out of uh, the uh, society in w into which that they may have been born. So it's very complex because uh, in my dealings, I've had uh, controversial uh, critiques of Bruno Bettelheim and, and the sort of uh, different uh, academic or uh, standard scientific approach with regard to psychology. And it's sort of uh, important, I think, to really uh, question uh, the way uh, fairy tales have been used uh, in ways that uh, do not enable children to become enlightened. Uh, to uh, in, in my work, I've, I've thought of fairy tales as beacons of uh, light that help us, uh, who, all people who are sort of marginalized, to uh, establish a position or experience in their society through the fairy tale. It was interesting, the second book Jack and I worked on together was The Sorcerer's Apprentice. And when I started to read the stories Jack had translated from many different languages and parts of the world and uh, time periods, I was I 
was surprised. I was completely unaware that there were actually two tail types of the sorcerer's apprentice, one of the humiliated and one of the rebellious apprentice. And I think in, you know, here through Disney and through other means of kind of softening and sanitizing um, these stories that we've lost the idea of young people rebelling and following their own creativity and imagination. And it was interesting when I approached Jack about using his translations for a book I wanted to make on the Grimm's fairy tales. We started to talk and he was this sort of, as as in his work, he was this kind of guide of um, so empathetic and supportive and you feel like everything is done in the for the quest of um, engendering imagination and supporting young people and expanding the field. And I felt that through all of our collaborations and it's been a really special um, dynamic and gift from Jack that, you know, this is such a big part of, I think why, as he's talked about why he does this work, um, but it's also how he operates in the world. That's a really interesting point you both make about the the sanitizing process that's gone on with a lot of stories and, you know, books that are presented to kids at my most recent experience with children's literature has been through reading books to my own two children. And I, I do think that a lot of the contemporary books seem, not all of them, a lot of them seem to make an effort to, you know, um, convey a sense of security, uh, make the world seem intelligible to the kids. But these, the Hoffman stories and, and, you know, the other fairy tales that you guys are talking about, there's often a really porous boundary between reality and fantasy or even between, you know, sanity and madness that is pretty dizzying. And, and Natalie, your, your drawings in this book um, and, and how they've been designed and incorporated into the design of the book with this sort of kaleidoscopic feel of each page. And I, I mean, I mean that in the sense of an old fashioned kaleidoscope where the objects mm. shift relative to one another unexpectedly mm-hmm. heightens the sense of disorientation that you feel reading these stories. Um, you know, can you talk about the process of, um, you know, giving a a visual feel to the stories and whether you felt it was inevitable or even important for the reader of Hoffman stories to feel disoriented. Absolutely. I think it's just what you said. It's, and it's an interest of mine and the work I do outside of um, the work for books and based on drawing, based on literature, but this, these places, these interstitial places where reality and fantasy collide um, and I worked with Marion Banshees, who's just so incredibly talented. And we both have this almost preference for visual mania. And um, because Hofmann invented the idea of the doppelganger, we wanted to mirror everything. And we also wanted, I think, in the way that the reader moves through the story and the imagery, things, things begin in black and white and slowly color is added. And eventually, before you know it, it, it is this kind of visual cacophony of heightened fluorescent pinks and yellows and teals and reds. And um, there is so much going on in each picture. Um, and, and also characters, as in the stories themselves, transforming from 
animal to human, magical to everyday. Um, and so that was, we really thought about, you know, how to best represent the stories through visual patterning, repetition, um, and the colors and um, the kind of fullness of the drawings themselves. Now, Hoffman wasn't only a writer. Um, he was trained in the law and worked sometimes anyway as a judge. And he also had a, a very great interest in music. He taught music. He composed music. He was for a time the director of a musical theater, I believe. Um, how do you both think that Hoffman's musical interest influenced his writing, both in terms of the stories themselves and his use of language. I haven't read it in the original German. I don't know whether both of you have. Yeah, I, I'm not too certain since I, I, I don't know enough about music uh, to judge to what extent um, Hoffman, uh, who actually did, uh, wrote operas and or symphonies or and and all sorts of music uh, to what extent uh, uh, it certainly was important for him uh, but he had to when he got to Berlin and he became a, a judge he had to change his interests and his interests turned to uh, the uh, stories that he wrote and most most of his stories, deal with marginalized people um, in, uh, for instance, in the Golden Pot, uh, Ans Ansel Anselmus is a, uh, stumbles all over the place and wants to learn how to live in society. And, uh, and he ends up by uh, landing in some type of Atlantis at the end of the story. And some of the stories in the, in, that, that we've chosen, um, both Natalie and myself, uh, uh, show that uh, uh, children can be marginalized. And these stories are somewhat, uh, I wouldn't say they're not dangerous for children, but they do reflect to what extent uh, children today are marginalized, uh, e even in their families. And uh, they have to deal with the, with, uh, very deep problems that uh, because most children don't want to adjust uh, to a world that uh, features killing and brutality and uh, has laws that do not uh, really enable them to develop the way they want. I think that for me personally, uh, the, mo the reason why I turned to look at fairy tales in, in depth in all over the world is that they reflected the uh, type of outsider positions that young people have have and have had. Uh, my in my own experience, I was teaching at my first teaching job in America was at NYU in the 1970s, and uh, I am somewhat of a leftist and uh, uh, was chosen by a. a, a when the uh, Vietnam War broke out and there were great protests by the students, uh, I worked and worked with students and other and my other colleagues at the university at NYU. And at one point, uh, uh, the 
several uh, groups took over different buildings uh, uh, when the murders happened in, in uh, different uh, at different universities in, in 19, I think it was 1972. And I lost my job because of um, my uh, sort of leading a strike at, at, at that time. And I wound up in Milwaukee at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and it was a very strange land, and I was really an outsider, and I didn't know how I would fit in. And it, it was through the through understanding of how people are socialized through literature and through tales in America that enabled me to, one, to regain confidence in myself and the way that I looked at society, and two, to help young people. I began not only teaching at the university, but I went into public schools and developed a um, method of storytelling uh, for two hours that it would enable children to become uh, the uh, uh, the uh, directors of their own lives, or the uh, the that they. And so these tales that I studied had both a personal and also social uh, influence, uh, and I continue to do that up to today. Up to today. I was just thinking that the I I love the elision of creativity and madness in the stories. And it's something that reminds me of um, music and the way it can turn so quickly and have this really strong emotional resonance. Um, I think of like the ring cycle and the insanity that ensues. It's it's like you, you begin watching an opera or listening to a piece of music and you it's another fantasy world that you step into. And it's, I love this idea that um, the usual rules don't apply and the suspension of reality can become a world which can so easily be turned. And I think Hoffman does that um, so strikingly. I think of the Sandman and the automaton and um, especially how Nathaniel dies in the end and that really, I feel a really strong connection there between music and literature, and Hoffman especially. Yeah, the word that after I'd read uh, about Hoffman's experience and interest in music, the word that occurred to me as I was reading these translations and looking at your at your drawings, Natalie, was syncopation because there is there is definitely a rhythm to both the stories and the art, but it is so consistently unexpected that the word that kept occurring to me was that they were they were both syncopated um and uh i wondered if natalie you could talk a little bit about the um about your process for making these i think you know your your early career you were primarily painting but these are drawings and was that was that an important shift for you when it came to uh realizing the images that you know that occurred to you when you read the stories it was. I think it was, um, and it may be, you know, I thought a lot about this as I'm getting ready for a painting show with drawings as well, because for me, the paintings and drawings are really the same thing, whether it's on canvas or it's on paper. Um, but I, when I started to read the Grimm's, it, like I said, it was the first time I had really strong synesthesia. 
And I felt that with these tales as well. Um, they felt very painterly, visual. I saw the scenes in color, the figures in color. Um, and it was kind of a matter of going through the stories, notating down what images came to mind at certain points, and then a, sort of again rereading the story and thinking about what scenes were necessary for the narrative itself to be represented. So the drawings ended up being a combination of very visceral responses and then kind of narrative necessity. Um, but they are longer stories than the fairy tales or folk tales. And they, I found myself, I would just read in chunks of, you know, a few pages at a time and the image would coalesce. And then it was just a matter of putting it down on the paper. And I don't sketch. Um, and I, I loosely planned out, you know, for each story, how many drawings we knew there would either be five um, or 10. And so it felt very kind of immediate and um, direct the whole process. I have a, a two-part question. <clears throat> One is um, whether either of you has thoughts about why interest in Hoffman's writing faded. Not he, he was very popular toward the end of his life for many decades after his death. But, you know, at this point, so many more people are aware of for example, the Nutcracker, then they are aware of the story, The Mouse King, or where the Nutcracker came from, for that matter. Um, and I wonder if you have thoughts about why the interest faded and also why um, the stories seem, you know, actually enduringly resonant and maybe particularly resonant now. I always raise the question in my own mind, are we insane because we haven't gone insane? And... Uh, I think that Hoffman uh, raises in almost practically all the stories he wrote, including uh, novellas and many other writings. Uh, he was someone who felt that uh, one cannot live in a society uh, in a way that you can have compassion for other people. And so, all the stories, the five stories that uh, Natalie has chosen, and, and I agreed, uh, show to what effect uh, society has a brutal uh, way of, of dealing with, with young people who uh, aspire to do different things. And so the only way I think that one can um, really maintain sanity is by taking a place on the margins. Uh, I feel that everything that I've done has been a, a, an attempt to become marginalized so I could see I can see what is going on and perhaps change things. And I think that Hoffman did felt that way. He uh, in the uh, in his experience as a judge in Berlin, uh, there are incidents in which, uh, he um, showed uh, a type of just dealing with uh, problems that young people were having. And it's definitely something that, that can be seen 
in his uh, in his writing. Uh, by the way, um, Hoffman really never died out in France. <laughs> he uh, uh, some of the great writers in the latter part of the nineteenth century uh, really developed a uh, sort of not, I wouldn't call a Hoffman society but they were tremendously influenced by him. And so I think you, we have to look at different countries and, we, uh, and, and ask uh, to what extent a particular author and his writings or her writings uh, have had an impact. And for sure, uh, for, uh, if you look at the ex existentialism uh, movement that uh, uh, in, at the beginning of the 20th century, um, had a, a great impact in France that uh, Hoffmann may have played to a certain extent a, a role there. So uh, certainly in America, uh, we have, uh, everybody more or less knows at Christmas time that you're going to see this ballet uh, the, of the Nutcracker and uh, unfortunately, uh, the ballet and the uh, sort of writing, the trans transformation of, of uh, the, the tale uh, really empties, I think, the tale of its real meaning because it is sort of a tragedy that happens in the Nutcracker and none of this is really comes through in any type of, uh, let us say, theater play or opera uh, at all. And so one of the things that I think we have to look at when looking at Hoffman's uh, Nutcracker is like in many other, like in another tale that I've worked on Bambi and the way that Bambi has been softened and uh, mutilated to a certain extent. Uh, because um, uh, the people who recreate uh, these stories don't have a sense of oppression, of the oppression in America and, and how difficult it is for people today to have a good sense of what humanity means. Mm. We, yeah, I, I mean, we live in such a puritanical society still, which we can see played out every day whether it's, you know, gay rights, voting rights, women's rights. Um, it's, um, and I'd say maybe we have gone <laughs> a bit insane as a society. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, Jack, to ask you a question that relates to something that we were just talking about, which was Hoffman's love of kind of childhood and desire to protect children. I was curious how how you thought about that in relationship to the affair he had with the 13 year old um, girl. It, how you do you think that he squared childhood with that um, romantic relationship? Are you asking that, that question to me? I am. <laughs> uh, I think that's been overdone. Uh, I, I think that, uh, uh, you know, uh, I would say that uh, it's likely when a young man uh, tutors a uh, maybe a, a very beautiful, we don't know 
how beautiful uh, the young woman was that he was tutoring. Uh, but uh, there's no doubt that when you have an intimate uh, relationship, um, and, and I don't think he had uh, a so-called sexual relationship with this young girl. It was just that he overstepped the rules and Hoffman was, was somebody who lived on the margins and he was constantly overstepping rules. It was uh, not by chance that uh, uh, he would fall in love with this young woman. And, uh, but uh, I think that he didn't do anything. Uh, he, ba he basically uh, was uh, chased out of a particular position and city. And he, he actually landed in Berlin where uh, he had a position of, of judge. So uh, I don't think it figure, figures too much. It, it figures... Let me put it this way. There are a lot of uh, stories that Hoffman wrote in which young men could never uh, have a satisfactory relationship with women. Maybe one or two stories that uh, that he ha does have, that the hero does have a uh, satisfying relationship. At any rate, uh, Hoffman was not somebody who I think... Uh, abided by the laws and rules of uh, the society, uh, the German society at that time. Interesting. Thank you. There is an interesting tension there, though, between his work as a judge and, you know, the reliance of that position on a sense of rationality and sort of mapping out a ethical or moral high ground or common ground and his stories, which, you know, as you say, are compassionate in their way, but are also dark and, and completely fantastical and wildly imaginative. What, to what extent were, was his writing actually an act of rebellion against the, his, his straight-laced other life? Yeah. Yeah, completely. Uh, he, he really detested German society and so that uh, uh, in most of his stories, his young heroes uh, do not have a have, there's no happy end. And uh, he, uh, these, these are, 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 as you put it, uh, dark stories. And I think that uh, his dark stories can enlighten us <laughs> uh, if we take them very seriously and uh, deal with them, depending on one's position, uh, uh, I, th I think that uh, not enough people have read Hoffman's stories. I think it, uh, it would shock people, and but also wake them up to what is happening around them. Uh, so there is a positive effect of his, of his tales. And, um, but uh, again, um, we live in a society which we want the happy end. We want things to be uh, taken care of, and uh, in but a lot of that deals with a, a lot of that is hypocrisy because we don't do what we should be doing with regard to uh, developing a compassionate society. 
And I feel like that's what artists do. We, we, we separate, um, we separate our worst desires that somehow reflect what humanity feels, um, you know, as a whole, and we give voice to that. And I think it only becomes unhealthy when that's repressed and tried to be, you know, controlled. And that's when um, trouble happens. <laughs> well, I see you, by the way, Natalie, <laughs> as a marginalized artist uh, and who really speaks her mind <laughs> through, through her through your painting and which are very provocative. And I think that is a result of your feeling that you, uh, that you haven't, I think you have been recognized, but I don't think that you have been recognized enough for what you're doing uh, because your work is very contentious and unusual, extraordinary. And uh, I think that you'll continue, hopefully continue to write from the margins. Oh, right, I'm not right, paint from the margins. <laughs> Thank you, Jack. That means a lot. No um, yeah, I think it's in, you know, even in the art world, making drawings is, is a point of being an outsider, much less being a mid-career woman. Um, or being a woman, <laughs> so and telling women's stories, it's still somehow um, shocking and marginalized. And I had a show a few years ago. I know J Jack and I have talked about this um, of drawings based on the erotic novel, The Story of O. And the show was actually censored, and it didn't. The drawings didn't even show genitalia, and they were kind of they were in service to the author's message about sex positive feminism and um, the ability that women have to actually have erotic imaginations. And a female dealer censored the show and said that she thought the drawings would traumatize women um, at the beginning of Me Too. And it was especially ironic because I had just written a piece in art news about my decade plus of sexual harassment and in the art world. And I was so surprised that art and images of women and sexuality where women, where women were actually in control, um, in control of their appetites, of their destiny, um, choosing to relinquish control could still cause so much upset. Yeah, that kind of comes back to an idea that Jack writes about in the introduction about this, the relationship between between two ideas, the wounded storyteller and the wounded healer and the kind of equivalency between those things. But in order for the healing to happen, the story has to be told, right? And seen. And images, I think it's really important that women and others especially see images of women and women in their full complexity. And it's how I approach these drawings in the book as well. It's how I've approached all the drawings I've done with Jack and otherwise is always from the vantage point of women. So often I will photograph, I don't think there are any exceptions in this book, but I photograph the women, I light them, I dress them, and then combine that with imagination. And the men, the male characters are always caricatured. I'm completely interested in what is going on in the women's minds and in in their bodies. Um, I think we've seen enough of uh, men in art. Well, thank you both for 
bringing this book into the world. It's it's beautiful. It's strange. It's important, um, and uh, we're very excited to publish it. And thank you again both for talking to me about it today. Well, thank you, and also I must say that Yale did an amazing job uh, in handling the illustrations and um, designing uh, with uh, Natalie designing the book. Uh, it's a, it's an extraordinary book, and uh, I think that uh, it deserves some type of recognition by the mass media. Uh, let's hope that the uh, there are people who are willing to read the book and to look at these illustrations that uh, can sort of stir their own imaginations. And these brilliant translations, which without Jack, we wouldn't have so many of these beloved stories and um, know what they really are in their real forms. So thank you. <laughs> the book again is The Wounded Storyteller, the Traumatic Tales of E.T.A. Hoffman. The stories have been translated by Jack Zipes. The book features drawings by Natalie Frank and also a foreword by Karen Russell. And it's available now at your local bookstore or online. Thank you for listening. You can visit us online at yalebooks.com for more episodes of this podcast, as well as information about all of our books.